Good morning. It's good to be here and good to be together today. We appreciate each of you being here. As Ben said, we have a number of ours still traveling, and so uh, all the visitors certainly help us kind of fill in the, the pews, and we appreciate you being here today and every day that you can be here with us. Sometimes when we're trying to come up with ideas to teach about or study about, we I think we fall victim to trying to get too creative. And I was kind of thinking through this as I was trying to decide what I wanted to speak about today and just decided that I don't talk personally, don't speak about the gospel enough. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the gospel. And certainly every message that we teach or preach should involve the gospel or circle back to the gospel in some form, but we're going to kind of just hit it head on this morning and hope you'll be benefited by being here. There's a passage in Ephesians chapter 4 where He's discussing the idea of unity, and he talks about a few interesting things here with respect to unity. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And I think it's interesting that in a discussion about unity, he mentions that there is one baptism, and that one baptism is what we want to talk about this morning. Many of you will know the verses by heart um, that we're going to talk about this morning. Many of you should know the verses by heart that we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, but if you don't know that, I hope that um, this will be something that uh, that is meaningful to you. There's no other topic that we could discuss that could be more important uh, than some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. And we're going to ask some questions that are important questions to ask uh, for each of us. In some cases, some people have already answered these questions, but they're very foundational topics to being a Christian. And we want to talk about what this one baptism, baptism means. The world has many different views about baptism. You may have uh, your own views about baptism and what baptism is, um, how it's represented, the act of baptism itself, what that means, what baptism means to the Christian, um, what it means to the alien sinner. Maybe it doesn't have any meaning at all to you uh, historically. Maybe your faith hasn't involved baptism at all. And we want to kind of try to put some clarity around that this morning, and hopefully um, we'll be able to do that. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the element, elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. I think it's interesting to point out that uh, the Scriptures specifically refer to baptism as an elementary principle. You know, if you think about education, elementary school is where it all starts. And so, in the education of a Christian, or the maturity of a Christian, baptism is something that is very foundational. And he's encouraging people here to move on toward maturity and leaving the doctrine of baptism. The ironic part of that is, much of the Christian world, this is not a foundational part of their Christian education. And so, I think these scriptures are given for us to say, look, this is not something that's that difficult. This is something that the Scriptures are pretty clear about. It's something we should all understand. It should, shouldn't be that difficult or controversial. There shouldn't be anything um, about it that's controversial. We want to try to figure that out this morning. What does baptism mean to you? You might answer that question that 
it's an outward display of your faith or that it's um, your showing of a commitment to your local church that you choose to attend. Some places use it um, to accomplish that. Some places use it to um, become a member of a local um, congregation or a local church. You might say it's essential to your faith. It's essential to your salvation. Many people have different ideas about what baptism is. If you try to capture that in pictures, these are some of the things you think about, you hear discussed. Um, you know, many places practice baptism in the form of with infants. Um, you know, you'll hear people say, oh, so our our son's baptism is coming up this week, and they carry out some um, sort of... Uh, practice like you see in the top left picture here where they um, use a bowl and water to baptize infants in that way. Um, some people ha- practice a method where they sprinkle like the woman in the top right. And then some people um, baptize like you see the man in the in the bottom picture. Maybe these pictures will help you uh, kind of visualize some of the things we're talking about this morning. We want to determine um, if it matters Um, which way you carry out baptism, and if so, which one of those is the correct way to do that. There's several baptisms mentioned in the Scriptures. Um, We don't have time to talk about in depth what the the one baptism that Ephesians chapter 4 is talking about is not, uh, but I certainly want to mention those things. One of those is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We read about in Acts chapter 10, you might remember, is there at the house of Cornelius, and salvation is offered for the first time to the Gentiles in this place. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And listen what he says here. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So you read about Holy Spirit baptism in conjunction uh, with the men and uh, women that we read about in Acts chapter 2 and then again in Acts chapter 10. When salvation is first offered to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, when it's first offered to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 at the house of Cornelius. The one baptism that Ephesians chapter 4 is talking about is not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It says here that he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The baptism of Jesus is what we're talking about. Holy Spirit baptism was never a command. It was a promise that was made. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1. Um, and it was had a very specific purpose and a very specific um, time frame that it was going to be taken care of. And it was something that couldn't be administered by men. I can't administer the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and neither can you. And neither can anyone that you're going to come in contact with, though some people will claim that they can. You might remember in the Scriptures reading about the baptism of John, John the Baptist, who came before Jesus baptizing in the wilderness, and some of those Scriptures that we hear often. And when it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
So these people, uh, you know, Paul challenged them, you know, what they were bapt- what baptism, um, you know, they participated in. And they said, well, that was the baptism of John. They hadn't, they hadn't heard of receiving the gift of the Spirit. They haven't heard of the baptism of Jesus. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2 and verse number 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the baptism that we're talking about this morning is the baptism of Jesus. And there's whole separate studies on the baptism of the Spirit and all those things that we're talking about for another time and another date. But I think it's sort of important to draw the distinction that the baptism of Jesus is what we're talking about this morning. What's interesting is Peter, in Acts chapter 2 here, directly answers a question. He preached the sermon that day, and the men said, what shall we do? You know, they, they were convicted. They realized they had just put to death the Son of God, and they knew that it was hopeless for them. And they asked a question that many people ask in their lifetime, what I do to be saved? And there may be no other question more important that a man or a woman could ask in their, in their lifetime than what must I do to be saved. Jason tells a story about visiting with a couple of Mormon missionaries one time. And, uh, you know, they, they have a very set curriculum and a very set playbook that they do their studies by and that type of thing. And he asked them a question, um, you know, at the end of a long discussion one time, if, if, if I want to be saved today, what do I do? And they said, well, we, we have this seven, five or seven-part s- series of studies that we need to sit down and have you go through and spend some time on that. And you need to s- say prayers and, you know, ask God to, to really send his message into your heart and all those things. It's a big, elaborate process that you'll find nowhere in the Scriptures. And whenever this question is asked in the Scriptures, there's a direct response given to those people. Peter told them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and you'll receive forgiveness of your sins. This, this is the question that we want to answer this morning. Paul knew the power of the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek or the Gentile. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And he had no shame in it because he knew it was the key to salvation. Sometimes... The way I think about things in the scriptures, it's helpful for me to back into sort of back into answers or back into solutions. This passage in Second Thessalonians has always um, kind of both fascinated me and scared me at the same time. And to somebody that's not a Christian, this should be a very sobering passage that we read here. He says, "And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels." In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and on those who, not, who, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. It's always been kind of interesting to me that he starts this by saying, if you're troubled, rest with us. And then he goes on to give this description that is not a restful description. Except he's talking to Christians. So if you're in Christ and you've obeyed the gospel, as he said, you, you have nothing to worry about. If you haven't done that, then this should be a very troubling passage to me. You can 
you can basically take one of two stances on this set of scriptures. You either believe this is this is not true. You believe this won't happen. That Jesus is not going to return. That you know that God is not going to return in flaming fire and not going to take vengeance on those that haven't obeyed the gospel. You either believe that is not going to happen, or you believe that what he says is going to happen, and it evokes some sort of emotional response from you. If you if you believe that what he says is going to happen and you haven't obeyed the gospel, doesn't it beg the question, how do I obey the gospel? When I read that passage, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I need to make sure that I have obeyed this gospel that he's talking about. And maybe you don't even know what that gospel is this morning. As I said, it's, it's a very foundational uh, thing for Christians, but many people in the larger Christian world today can't even answer the question of what is the gospel. Most people will answer it probably by saying it's John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. That's an important scripture. It's important for us to understand the, the love that God had for the world that he was willing to give his only son but that doesn't answer the question of what the gospel is. And it's an important distinction because if we're going to obey the gospel, we should know what it is. And he answers that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he just calls it out clearly that I declare the gospel to you. I preached it to you. You received it. It's by that gospel that you're saved. Unless you believed in vain. And then, he, and then he goes on to describe it. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It's helpful to look at a chart, as Pat Manning figured out, however many years ago. And it, some of you have seen this chart over and over again. Some of you haven't. But it's, it's really helpful to view this graphically when you think about what the gospel is. He said that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the picture of the cross. That he went to the cross and was willing to give his life. That he was buried and that he rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the facts of the gospel. That Jesus died that he was buried, and that he rose again. There's nothing controversial about it. There's nothing, nothing difficult about it. The, the scriptures make it clear. So when people talk about the gospel doctrine, the gospel that can save us, this is it. This is what, this is what can save us. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. Now, if you're inquisitive like me, and you, you're a question asker, and you said okay, how do I obey this gospel? What you've described to me is a set of facts. There's nothing here to do. This is something that happened. Jesus died, and he was buried, and he rose again. So for me, the natural question is in how do you obey it? Well, Romans chapter 6, he talks a lot about that. And really, Romans chapter 6 is a chapter that Christians should know by heart um, because it explains so many things, not just baptism. It talks about lots of different things that are foundational to being a Christian. Listen to what he says. This is the end of Romans chapter 6. But God be thanked 
that though you were the slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Isn't this passage such a kind of a relief language-wise compared to Second Thessalonians when he's talking about flaming fire and taking vengeance on those? Here he says, God be thanked you were the slaves of sin. And why is that? Because you obeyed from the heart a form of doctrine. And he spent the first part of this chapter describing what that means. But he says, by doing that, you have been set free from your sin. You set free from the bondage of sin and became slaves to righteousness. Let's back up in the first part of the chapter. Verse number 3, Romans chapter 6. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. It's pretty clear, isn't it? If we use our same chart to think about the facts of the gospel and what he talks about here in Romans chapter 6, we are buried... We are baptized into his death. We are buried with him through baptism into his death. That like as Christ was raised from, the, raised from the dead, we should walk in newness of life as well. Do you see how that mirrors the gospel? you see how that's obeying the form of doctrine? We're crucified with him. The body of sin is destroyed. And we're freed from sin. We live with him. It's a mirror of the gospel. He said, God be thanked you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. That's the form of doctrine. That's how you obey the facts. Now, there's a couple of other passages that talk about baptism very similarly to Romans chapter 6. One of those is Colossians chapter 2, where it says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. The, the old King James calls that faith in the operation of God. And it's such an important distinction. People want to go on about, you know, the works of baptism. How that's, a, that's being saved by works. It's not being saved by works. It's faith in the operation of God. You're being obedient to a commandment of God. Being obedient to a commandment of God is never a work of man. That's doing God's will. Who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see, with the point at which your sins are forgiven, it's clear in the scriptures, it's it's at the point of baptism. When you bury the old man, it's a, like, it's, a, it's a likeness. It's a like figure in faith in the operation of God. Now, some people might wonder what it is about the water. You know, we have a baptistry that we keep full here and at a comfortable temperature and clean and all those things. There's nothing about that water. I can jump into that water and do a cannonball, 
I can fill up a water gun with that water and shoot you, and there's nothing going to happen. It's not holy water or anything like that. There's, no, there's nothing special about that. I think somebody was talking about it here a while back and talked about it being nasty and real water. It at least is well water, so it at least would taste okay. There's nothing special about that water. It's faith in the operation of God. That's what he says here. It's an act of obedience. It's submitting yourself to God. Now, when you think about that operation in the context of the pictures we showed with the um, infant baptism, with the sprinkling, or with the man who um, was completely immersed in water, isn't it clear the only one that mirrors the gospel? It's a burial. It's a water burial. It's an immersion. I remember Marlon Cole telling us the story multiple times about his conversion. I may have lost my screen, so I may just have to read it to you. There we go. Um, but he talks about when he was dating his wife um, and studying about the Scriptures, and she was trying to convince him that he needed to be baptized um, to be forgiven of his sins. And I remember him talking about um, specifically telling her, you know, show me, show me one passage in the Bible that says baptism saves us. And she said, okay, turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. And she started in verse 18. For Christ had also suffered once for sins and just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. You see how he phrased it there? The like figure, just like, just like Noah and eight souls were saved by water in those days. A like figure, a similar figure in that water now saves us. That baptism now saves us. He said, it's not any, there's not anything about the water. It's not the putting away the filth of the flesh. It's not a bath. It's nothing that physically cleanses you. It can be the filthiest water in the world, and it can cleanse you from your sins. If you have faith in the operation of God, it's an answer of a good conscience toward God. It means you're a good conscience. Allow, you're allowed to have a good conscience because you know you're obedient to God. You did what God asked you to do, and he forgave your sins because of it. As we close, I want to think about the characteristics of the one baptism that we read about in the Scriptures. Number one is that it's for the remission of sins. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 we already read. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You think about Paul's own conversion that you read about in Acts chapter 22. To me, Paul is the, is the best example for, for somebody to be convinced that baptism is a necessary act. You know, Paul prayed earnestly. You might remember his conversion story on the road to Damascus, how he was blinded and um, those things that occurred to him there. He prayed for three solid days. Surely if a prayer can save somebody, that Paul would have been saved by a prayer. But Jesus told him he still had his sins. He said, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It was for the remission of sin. Number two, it was a water burial. 
We read about in Romans chapter 6 how it's a, it's a burial. We're buried with Christ by baptism into death. You think about the um, Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, how Philip had preached to him. and um, he, This man was reading the scriptures, and Philip came, came unto him, and the man... And he asked the man if he understood what he read. He said, I don't have any idea. And so he began to preach to him Jesus. This man had a clear urgency about being baptized. They came across some water. He said, here's some water. What's, what's keeping me from being baptized here? And they both went down into the water, and he baptized him. It was a water burial. So we already said multiple times it was something that was done in the name of Jesus. It's not John's baptism. It's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit or any other baptism but the baptism of Jesus. It's available to all mankind. Uh, you know, a lot of, you think about all the various doctrines, Calvinistic doctrines and all those people that, with the predestination and those types of things. Paul said it's the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. It's been made available to everyone. There's no restrictions on that other than obeying the gospel. It's available to those who believe. Obviously, belief would be a prerequisite to that. Mark 16, 16, Jesus' direct commandments, preach the gospel to everybody. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. It adds you to the church. We didn't read in Acts chapter 2, but it talks about there at the day of Pentecost when Peter preached that sermon and the many thousands of people that were saved that day. It said the Lord added them to the church such as should be saved. It's, it's not anything that any man gets to determine when you have membership in the church. There's, nothing, there's no vote that has to take place. There's, there's no you know, other conditional things that any man gets to determine. The Lord determines who's added to the church. It's His church. And when you're baptized, He adds you to the church. And finally, it creates a new man. You're born again. You know, there's a lot of talk about born-again Christians. I'd submit to you there is no other kind of Christian besides a born-again Christian. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Jesus said, unless a man is born of the water and of the Spirit, he can't be saved. You're born again. Romans chapter 6 that we've, all, that we've read. And that, it's easy to understand that. When you think about the burial, the water burial that he talks about, it's easy to, it's easy to recognize the newness of life aspect of that. We talk about Paul's conversion, all those various conversions that you read about in the book of Acts. There was a clear and a common baptism that was involved in all those. And it was the baptism of Jesus. And it shared these characteristics that we talked about this morning. If you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel, I hope it's clear to you what that means. Maybe you need to study some more about that. We would certainly offer to help with that and um, you know help you gain a better understanding of that, any questions you may have. Uh, but we would urge you to do that today. If, you, if you're here this morning and you haven't obeyed the gospel, we offer an invitation for that very reason, that you would obey the gospel and experience the benefits of that and experience the benefits of being freed from your sin. So we talk about that the Scriptures say, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I, when I think about the terror of the Lord, I think about Second Thessalonians and him taking vengeance on those that don't obey the gospel. We invite you to do that this morning. If you have any need the church can help with, please come and make it known as we sing this invitation song.